Hi, this is Jason Lee, Pastor Casper Alliance Church. Thanks for stopping by the weekly teaching podcast. This will be week eight of our Hebrews series that we're taking through the uh, end of the summer. We're looking at chapter eight. Hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. If you like to know more about Casper Alliance Church, you can check us out at casperchurch.com or you can go to your app store on your phone or your tablet, search for Casper Alliance Church, download the app and be connected with us directly. Look for the double C's. Have a great day. All right, who has a, um, anybody in this room have like a Methodist background, you know, a Methodist church, anybody? My, the first VBS that I remember going to was at my, um, my grandma's church, the, uh, the United Methodist Church of Kennesaw, Nebraska. Kennesaw, Nebraska is a metropolis nestled right between the Tri-Cities of Nebraska. Anybody know what the Tri-Cities are? If you can name one of them, I'll give you a high five after church. Nope. What'd you say? No. 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 Minden's close. Minden is close. I've been to Minden a lot. There we go. Kearney. Kearney is one of the Tri-Cities. Now, if you were if you were a Nebraska aficionado, you would know that Kearney is located fairly close to a town called Hastings and also a town called Grand Island. Well, right nestled in there is Kennesaw, Nebraska. Kennesaw, Nebraska. Hey, watch out for the brown bears or black bears that are roaming around town, kids. Seriously, would it, it would totally be Casper Alliance Church have one of our kids eaten by a bear this morning. It would just be... I'm not laughing about it. I'm laughing with you because all of you are going, that's probably a thing that could happen here, which is, you know, I've worked in a church where a drive-by was a possibility. Never thought a bear attack would be a possibility. So this Methodist church, I remember going to it as a, as a little kid. My grandpa was a pastor at it. Um, I actually was able to preach in that church uh, in 2012 at my grandma's funeral. Uh, but I remember going to vacation Bible school at this little tiny Methodist church uh, in the, right in the middle of this very small town. And I would, I would go stay with my grandma for a couple weeks. Uh, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. It was great. I might have complained on the way out. But I, like, I, I love spending time. She was a spiritual influence. I've told tons of stories about her. Um, just a dynamic uh, lady who loved Jesus. And so she would always bring us out, and we would go to VBS, and there'd be like 12 of us there. No. Uh, there'd be like 12 of us there, 15. But, you know, when a, when a vacation Bible school is happening in a church, the church is kind of like ups itself a little bit. And so I, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of just good memories um, from vacation Bible school in my lifetime. Uh, Carter who is, uh, I guess, an offspring of mine. I don't know at this point what he is. He's a child. He, he's, a t- he's a kid. If you haven't been paying attention to Carter, by the way, holy moly, remember? Like, he might be six foot by the end of the summer. Carter accepted Christ at a vacation Bible school. So VBS is important to me. It really is. Uh, the Methodist Church became an important kind of like anchor in my life is like, I always remember the Methodist church as being the strong gospel. Who cares where they are now? I'm saying what I remember, right? John Wesley, I'm going to read this to you, was the founder of the Methodist church, by the way. Uh, And he 
searched for many years to find this thing, assurance that God had forgiven him and had accepted him. He met people who had this experience, who like had the dynamic, like, and if you've met somebody like that in your life, you know, they have stories where they like just were set free from sin and felt the weight of that sin go away. Um, John Wesley kept chasing after that. He sought assurance of forgiveness by working, by praying, by doing uh, spiritual activity, uh, attending church, by constantly like confessing and sa- sacrificing. Some of you maybe remember growing up and, and receiving Christ every week at the altar call, right? Like you're never sure. You're always just like, you're a step away from like, oh. So um, as part of his journey, uh, he continued to search for this peace. To, to like um, encounter God in a deep way to where he felt the assurance, the, the like that solid thing he was grabbing a hold of to where forgiveness was not just an idea or a hope for, but a thing that he really felt and was secure in. Um, there's a story of him at a Bible study in London um, that he, he's talked about going, he went unwilling to, he didn't really want to go to it. I imagine it was, um, you know, it's late at night. Who wants to go to a Bible study in London late at night? You want to go do other things, right? Um, and he, he wrote this about that, that moment at this Bible study. There was a moment where I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation. And the assurance was given to me that he had taken away all of my sins and saved me from the law of the sin of death. He went on rejoicing and, and, and praising the Lord for the forgiveness of sin. And he, he again, fell into that trap of find, trying to find forgiveness and not being assured that, that salvation or forgiveness was there. Um, and living in that kind of juxtaposition to where you know the sin that you live in and you trust in the hope that's to come. And we all can identify with that a little bit. You know what you did yesterday. And you know maybe the thoughts that you had. And if anybody complained about the weather yesterday, you're just flat wrong. (laughs) You're you're not right. Because if you complained yesterday, again, I'm going to remind you January is coming. (laughs) And it's, it's less than a year away. And when January comes, you will wish it was 95 degrees and burning your skin. Uh, <laughs> anyway, as, as, um, as, as Charles Wesley wrestled with this in real time, leading people, developing his own movement, uh, chasing after things, and, and I, I identify with that a little bit, um, he, he stumbled in, and, and even as we read today's text from Hebrews chapter 8, he landed here. And, and he heard this, and he, and he coupled that with what Paul says in, in uh, Romans 8, where there's no condemnation now because I'm in Christ Jesus. And he penned this, which we sang, I think, last week. We might have sang, maybe two weeks ago. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Behold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be? 
that thou, my God, should die for me. The journey of, of struggling back and forth and trusting, am I really forgiven or am I not? Do I need to accept Christ again and again and again? Which, frankly, growing up in the church I grew up in, great Bible preaching, Baptist church, I felt that every week because I understood that my sin did things. And I felt a certain way about my sin. I'm like, there's this thing that's inside of me that's not rooted out of me yet. There's this thing I'm living with constantly. And I didn't feel like shame. I felt this, like, just this conviction that like something needed to be fixed inside of me. And I get that. And there was this moment I remember distinctly, distinctly, not at seven, not at eight, not at 12, not at 15, not at, not at 20, but at 22 years old in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in a brownstone with living with five other horrible men, I recognized that Jesus was on the throne and I was allowed to approach the throne with freedom, assurance, and confidence. And in the alliance, the Christian Mission Alliance, we would call that the crisis and the progression of sanctification. It was not a matter if I was saved or not. It was a matter of me living a life of assurance. And here's what happened. In that moment, and I remember weeping on the floor, this silly little brownstone, which we drove our boys by, and they're like, that's where you went to college? And I'm like, yeah, lame. Like, that was, that was like the thought, like, no, this is cool. And that bridge right over there that you can see from my steps, that fell down one time. It just collapsed into the river. And they're like, cool. <laughs> like, you know you want these experiences. Your kids to grab a hold of them and go, that was amazing, Dad. Thank you for showing me that. And they're like, I really don't care. Where can we eat? What's the closest McDonald's? I'm like, Son, anyway, I remember this moment, and I remember pr crying and praying, and Adrienne was there with me, and we were engaged, and just this sense of, of assurance that God has called me out, and that this thing that, that was hindering me, this thing that was holding me, this thing that I was in my own mind wrestling with every day, was actually pushing me further and further away from the Lord, as, instead of approaching the throne of Christ, I was hiding from it because I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And that idea of there's no condemnation now. Boldly I go before the throne. Boldly I step in. Well, amazing love. How can it be that Christ died for me? So some of you might know this or just assume this about me, which is a problem of yours. I could cuss like a sailor if I want to. Now, what I've identified here is there's a bunch of you in this room, and I'm not going to call any, any Bartoshes out at all. <laughs> they use euphemisms to make it sound like they're swearing. Yeah, you know you do because I've called you out on it. I'm like, you cannot say that. That's a euphemism. Because here's what happened in that moment in Minneapolis. I just stopped swearing instantly. I have no explanation for it other than that moment to where this thing that was inside of me just changed. And it wasn't a matter of God fixing me. It was a matter of me surrendering all of me. That's the theology of sanctification, which we'll get into a different time. <laughs> but it's proximity to Christ that transformed my behavior. My soul was already coupled my soul was already brought into the sacred space, but my life switched because 
I didn't wrestle with this daily anymore because I trusted that through and through, I'm set apart. This is what um, Hebrews 8, I believe, is, is trying to capture for us. Jesus is our high priest. He's offered an effective, perfect sacrifice. You don't have to say bologna sauce anymore. That was specifically for you. <laughs> I've called her on it so many times now. Everybody's going to listen to when she, the way she talks. Sorry. <laughs> well, hey, you go to my church. We, we're here long enough now. We've been here long enough to where, hey, you come to my church, you're gonna, you know you're going to get called out. <laughs> so <laughs> our church, our church, our church. That's right. Jesus went to the cross, effective, perfect sacrifice. Better than anything else that's happened in the past. The, the writer of Hebrews has been making this case for a very long time. Jesus is greater than anything that you know. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than all of it. He is effective, and it's a perfect sacrifice, and he can satisfy all the things that you are, feel like you're missing or longing for. And here's, we're going to talk about this one idea today, I think. And here's the question. What is a leader? What is a leader? Leadership, and this is, this is a textbook definition, leadership is the ability of an individual or a group of individuals to influence and guide followers. Most business models have four kind of ways that people lead. You're the authoritative leader, which means you mobilize people toward a vision. You're a filative leader, which I asked Adrienne how to pronounce multiple times because I had never heard that or seen that word, by the way. But you create a, an emotional bond or harmony within your group, again, moving towards a certain goal or objective. The democratic leader who builds consensus through participation, invites everybody into the process, there's consensus, and then we go. Then there's the pace-setting leader who expects excellence and self-direction. So as living by example. When you look at these sets of leadership, and this is where I, I kind of want us to go today, is that Jesus is the perfect leader. And the idea of a perfect leader is he's going to mobilize a group of people or individuals towards a particular vision. And Jesus is that leader. Now, if you look at that, you can go, okay, uh, I know what our pastor is. He's Maybe. Awesome. <laughs> no. But then there's times where all of us, as we lead people or lead our families or lead, we, in, we move in and out of these particular ways of leading. At church, sometimes I'm the authoritative leader. I'm saying, this is where we're going. There's times where I've been in a meeting, not necessarily here, but like throughout my 20 years of ministry where I've been the democratic leader and I'm trying to get consensus and I leave this meeting and I want to vomit because it's like I'm, I'm trying hard to do something that's not natural to me. There's ways in which we, we do it, but here's the deal. In all of our leadership as humans, we have flaws. We have failures. And the writer of Hebrews, the pastor, is saying, no, 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 Jesus is the perfect, perfect leader, Amen. and he's worth following. Amen. That's what we grab a hold of. He's worth following. Well, how do you follow somebody? Now, here's the deal. I'm going to expose something that's, um, that is going to change. Again, it's going to change the way we listen to each other. I'm sorry. All of us in this room, every last one of you, have words that we say. Multi like, there's one or two that you say a lot. Now, I have them. 
So there, in preaching, there's, I've said this before, there's, there's a phrase that I use, and I do this a lot too, by the way. If you just if you pay attention to my hands, you'll see me do this. I'm like, I'm turning the knob, I'm, I'm dialing, right? So when I preach, I say, so that. Now you, you and I listen to myself enough. <laughs> What's that? Indeed, indeed. indeed. I, you listen to, I listen to myself back enough times to where I try to alter what I say. I had a pastor friend of mine in, in my past who used two words all the time. He used the word avenue and realities. Like he would work those two things into most sentences. And I'm like, that's really, I don't like, and I, so then I'm like, I don't even know why you would use the word avenue. Like it would be part, if he's listening, I know he's not because whatever, but he's doing his own thing this morning. But he would say realities like every fifth sentence or avenue, like, you know, we got to find the right avenues. And I'm like, I don't know if that's how we talk. (laughs) You all do it, by the way. Every last one of you in this room has like a sentence or like some words that you use. Just don't judge each other. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Synergy. Um, so as I was putting together uh, the message for this morning, here's what kept coming to me. There are three realities <laughs> to build your life around. And every time I kept saying it, I'm like, that is a horrible thing to say because I hate that word realities. But I could not come up with a better word. So I kept saying realities. The realities that we have to build our life around. There are these, rea- these things that are in our real life that we need to do in order to build ourselves around the person of Jesus Christ and, and trust in it so that it becomes real to us. See, when I had that moment in Minneapolis in, on, in my brownstone and Jesus became not just my savior, and, but he became my sanctifier, which made my real life experience in him altered, changed. It was different. You could see different behaviors in my life. That's a reality. That's a reality. Like you should not receive Christ and then go about your business and just be the same as you were yesterday. That's not how it should look. There's a difference in you. The inside should be the outside experience, right? The saved soul should be the saved experience and the saved words and the saved behaviors and the saved attitudes and the saved mindset. But many times that's not how it looks. There's like this disconnect. And that's what Charlie, Charles Wesley, Charlie, Chuck, that's what Chuck was searching for. It's like there's this disconnect between my behaviors and my belief. And the way in which I live does not match the way my heart or soul is, has been regenerated or, or saved, And so the realities of your salvation or following Jesus or orienting your life around the person of Christ should have a reality uh, change in your real life. It shouldn't just be a a thing up here or like a word that you say or or even an activity of showing up on Sunday morning. It should change very specific things in your life. And all of you can think of them. You, right now, some of you are going, ah, that should be different. Ah, I probably should change that. And it's not about works. It's not about like, it's not about like condemning or making you feel guilty. It's, it's the reality of following Jesus needs to change your reality. Here's the deal. Here's a reality. One of the realities, Jesus is real leadership. Real leadership. He's worth following. So a leader understands the assignment. Let's look at the text. Hebrews 8, you're like, are you going to read from the Bible today? Somebody's in there like, are we, is this just a, like a, this is this like.
Sometimes I have self-control, even though I revealed what I was going to do. Here's the main point, and this is one of the only times in Scripture where the writer or an author, a biblical author, says, here's the main point. Here's, here's what I want to show you. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest, Jesus, must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest. Since there are already priests who offer the gifts required by law, they serve a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. But now Jesus, our high priest, has given has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. Again, Jesus is greater than, for he is the one who mediates, who intercedes for us, and is far better, has a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Now hear this, Jesus is real leadership. Now what is real leadership? Real leadership understands the assignment. He knows what he's doing. He knows his task. And if we walk Jesus' life through the gospel and we see it, and we haven't explored much of the gospels actually since I've been preaching, we did like John, a little bit of John, and we've done a little bit of Matthew. We did the Sermon on the Mount. But if you, if you walk with Jesus and you read and follow how the biblical authors write and capture his story, he knows his assignment. He understands his purpose, his calling, and why he's here. That's true leadership. That, that's a reality that you can, you can go, I'm going to follow this guy because he knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's been called to do. He knows his tasks. And even though in Gethsemane, we talked about a couple weeks ago, I guess, he, he prayed to ask the last part of his job to be removed. But still, wanting it to be removed, he was willing and able and capable and committed to stepping into it because he understood the assignment. That's leadership. Good leaders, Jesus providing real leadership is authentic. It's not fake. Like it's, there, is, there is honesty in it. There's not a way in which we like capitulate or capture like the, the, the hope of this person and the desire of that person and the, these people are here and we, we morph and chameleon to whoever's in our room or we're meeting with. That's not real leadership. That's not authentic leadership. That's leadership for leadership's purpose of feeling good about themselves or not trying to offend anybody. That's not the way Jesus led. Again, if you walk with him through the Gospels, he offended, irritated, bothered people. And also people followed him because of that, I would imagine. Like, hey, we're going to kill some Pharisees? Awesome. Let me join up with the band of hoodlums and let's go do it. Some of you guys would be like, you would get sucked into discipleship because you'd be like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men. And you're like, sweet, I love fishing. And then all of a sudden, a year later, you're like, this is not fishing because it's not. <laughs> It's ministry. And this is the thing that, that when you lead with, with an authentic, like, you're not concerned. You're not concerned about the way people feel about you. This isn't to give anybody in this room permission to run over anybody, by the way. But what I'm saying is real leadership is authentic. And again, it's worth following. It's worth shaping your life to follow Jesus. Real leadership um, demonstrates an effective way to live. 
We have studied the Sermon on the Mount here. The Jesus Manifesto, this is how you're going to live. This is the way in which you need to live your life. The writer of Hebrews is saying that this Jesus that we're talking about, he's already sitting at the right hand of God. He's already on the throne. He's already gone through the curtain we found out last week in Hebrews 7. He's the great high priest in the same order of Melchizedek. He is the one which can do all of the things that Scripture is talking about doing. And this high priest has a far better ministry, a far better uh, behavior and a way in which he does ministry. And the covenant is much better than the covenants of old. So in Jesus, we have real leadership, true leadership. And in Jesus, we have a leader that is far superior to anything else that we could follow. Build your life around Jesus. We'll choose to follow all sorts of different things. This isn't criticism, all of you who went to the Trump rally. It's not. But we are so committed to following charismatic people who are promising change. Men come, men go. Promises come, promises go. People stand up and say, I'm going to promise this, I'm going to promise that. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And I'm not gonna, we're not going to get political, but it's really easy to get sucked into believing that these promises are real. I've talked about this before. I do this all the time at home. I suck my wife into thinking I'm a good man by promising her things I can't carry out, like increasing the water pressure at our house. I don't know how to do that. I'm glad she's not in this room, but I promised I would figure it out. You can't do it. You got to call somebody and then you got to pay somebody or you got to shut something else off. I don't even know. I don't know. I'm just making it up. But good leaders might make stuff up, right? No. Real promises. So what? Jesus. Jesus gave real promise. He provided real promises. Let's do it. Marie, you've asked for it. These are the promises that Jesus gave. Lots of them. Pages upon pages upon pages of promises. Promises of security in Christ. Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day he comes back. Ephesians 2.1 and 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, but you've been made alive in Jesus even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 1 Peter 1.5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that has already been revealed in the last time. 1 John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Colossians 1, 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into a kingdom of the Son. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all of your sins. Revelation 3.20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 1 Peter 1, 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, enduring word of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. John 1, 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are real promises. Those are real things that are talked about and demonstrated by the work and the life of Christ. And the biblical authors write about it, talk about it, and encourage their people and the churches to live in it. Real promises. Now here's the deal. This real promise, let's read the rest of Hebrews 8. This is the deal. Verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for the second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, now we're not going to read the rest of this. I want you to turn with me to where it's said. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is just a hyperlink or an echo of Jeremiah 31. But let's just read Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 Let's pick it up with 31. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my instruction deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. That's a real promise. The writer of Hebrews is saying the old covenant is being pushed out. Here's the new covenant. This is the new way we're doing it. And here's the deal. The old covenant didn't produce anything in somebody. It didn't produce the righteousness, the right living. It didn't actually create transformation. It created salvation. It created redemption. It started that redemptive process. But there was this thing that they continued to fall away and fall away and fall away and make poor decisions and live in that tension of real life and saved life where they were like, waiting to go to heaven, but screwing up daily. And, and the issue here is those promises they weren't clinging to, they weren't, they weren't giving, uh, they weren't changing their behaviors. They might have changed their place of where they were going to be when they died, but they weren't changing their life here on earth. And ultimately, again, I've said this a hundred thousand times, knowing Christ, having salvation in Jesus isn't like going to the bank where you put yourself into the little canister and shoot your way to heaven. That's not what salvation is. It's a sweet spiritual deposit that you get to go, whoop. But you have to live and live in a way in which it's transformed. See, the real life leader in Jesus creates real promises, promises of real transformation, promises of real knowledge of him. What is that? Well, we're gonna get into it. That's the third reality, by the way. 
true forgiveness to where you sense it, feel it, and, and you know and you live that out in hope. See, we talk about hope all the time. We have these words and we say these things. And we have these trite phrases and these platitudes and these church words. And we, we like, we, we have hope in Jesus. We even have a mission statement. It says, fighting forward together through hope in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? It should mean something in our real life, not just words. Not just billboards or placards or fun social sayings. It should mean something that's transformative in the way in which you live. Because you don't get to just have time out until you go to heaven. You have to live. The transformed life is such an evangelistic tool to a lost world. It is, it is crazy crazy how effective it is when somebody sees the new Jesus in you and the way in which you live differently. Amen. It is remarkable how people see it and recognize it and say, you don't match the rest of this world. You live differently. There's something different about you. Why? Because you've been changed. You're different. Your forgiveness of sins feels effective because you have victory over those sins. You no longer wallow in it. You no longer let it capture you. It's not part of your tension that you live in constantly. The sin is actually physically conquered in your body. Turn with me to Galatians real quick. Galatians, we haven't actually studied that here. Galatians is Romans light. Galatians 4, let me just, Paul's talking about this very kind of like two world tension. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons. One was, a slave, was from his slave wife and one was a freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promises. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like the Mount, si Mount Sinai in Ar Arabia, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is... Our mother, as Isaiah said, rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children and the woman, than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise just like Isaac. But you now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born of the power of the spirit. But what did the scripture say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son from the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. So verse one of chapter five, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again with the slavery of law. Here's the deal. That tension, I'm acknowledging it. I'm saying we live in it. There's this, there's this pressure and this life that we have, sin 
and we know it. And here's, if we're going to, the reality of following Jesus, there should be transformation in who you are. The real promises of Jesus should change who you are. Now, here's the last thing, and we're going to wrap up. Um, how fast can I do this? I'm going to invite the worship team up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this with words. The last reality to build your life around is Jesus provides real relationship. Real relationship. It's not, you're not, um, you're not, again, you're not the bank tube just waiting to get shot to heaven. The here and now, interacting, spending time with the Lord. Jesus, satisfying needs, never leaving you hanging. How many times has somebody in your life let you down? I mean, let's be honest. How many times have I let you down? I mean, that's, that's the human condition. That's what we do. We let each other down. Jesus, and this is not some sort of youth group, trite VBS saying, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm not going to leave you hanging. You're not going to be left hanging. That is something to orient your entire life around. That's true leadership. The thing that hits me the hardest is that Jesus promises to know me. John 1.12, I read a little bit ago, if you believe in him, you have the right to become a child of his, a child of God. There's nothing more sacred, I think, on the human world than, the, than the, the powerful relationship between mom and dad and kid. That thing is real. And when you feel like you belong to the family of God, scriptures are teaching us that he knows us. He knows us. He cares for us. I mean, he, and you can know him too. It's relational. You've been invited into a real relationship. So the three realities that make Jesus greater than is Jesus is a real leader. Real leadership. And you can follow him. He's worth following. Jesus provides real promises that have real effect in your real life that can change who you are and how you live. And Jesus provides a path for real, authentic relationship with him so that you can know him. And he will satisfy and care for you, comfort you, and be a part of your life 